We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com squared. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Andrea Elliott, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and New York Times investigative reporter, discusses her new book, A Portrait of Poverty in New York, Invisible Child. Poverty and how to alleviate it in a country where capitalism is king is a divisive issue in the US. Recent statistics suggest that low-income Americans' life expectancy sits around 15 years less than the country's most wealthy. Troubling figures like these make the work of our guest today, the journalist and author Andrea Elliott, all the more relevant. Her book, Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope in New York City, focuses on Desarni Coates, a youngster moving from homeless shelter to homeless shelter with her tight-knit family. It might be her book debut, but Andrea is no stranger to crafting vital storytelling, having received the Pulitzer Prize in 2007 for feature writing. Our host today is the novelist Alex Preston, author of titles including Love and War and his new title, Win Chelsea. Here's Alex with more. Andrea, it's an enormous pleasure to speak to you again and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I couldn't be happier to be in dialogue with you. So, So this is, at its heart, the story of one child in New York City. And I wonder if you could maybe start by introducing us to Dasani and, and her extraordinary family. Yes. So I met Dasani standing outside of a homeless shelter. I was there as a reporter for The New York Times in October of 2012. And she walked out of the shelter with her siblings and her mother, and she just immediately struck me as a kind of electrifying presence. She had a lot to say. She was rambunctious. She was uh, just a very spirited child. She was kind of just exudes, she at that time, sort of popping with enthusiasm and promise. She was on the honor roll. She was the fastest sprinter on the block. She had big dreams and a big agenda, it seemed. And what wasn't immediately apparent in just engaging with her was how hard her her actual life was. And it was the contrast of those two things, of her huge aspirations for herself and the reality of being crammed in one room with nine family members, often struggling with food insecurity, hunger is the more blunt way to put it, mice running around her room, constant parenting burdens placed upon her because her parents were overwhelmed. It just, it was stunning to me that she could 
kind of balance those two things. I don't even think it was about balancing. It's that those two facts were just a part, they coexisted inside of her and they were a part of who she was, that she wanted more, she wanted to transcend. And yet this was her life and she was showing up for it. And uh, and it was in a city that was so wealthy, right? Well, that's that's one of the things. But Andrea, maybe just give us a little flavor of, uh, of, of the book. Okay, I'm going to read you a passage that comes about three quarters of the way through. This is a book that follows Dasani as she grows up. So it, I f- was in her life for eight years with her family and saw a lot of ups and downs. She came of age in that time. And uh, one of the most difficult things about being deeply poor in New York City is that you have to survive all these government systems that can be generous and can also be very punishing. And so I'm going to show you a quick photograph. This is Dasani and her closest sister of the seven siblings, Aviana, in the background. They were both named for bottled water, Aviana, Dasani. They were born 11 months apart and they were just like twins. This was taken in 2012 when I began. So Andrea, just just tell us exactly how old Dasani is in, in the photo there. In the photo, she is 11, and her her sister behind her, Aviana, is 10. And um, they had they consider themselves quote unquote full blood sisters. They had this, you know, they shared the same pillow, the same mattress, the same dresser drawer. They had secret handshakes. They were, it was that unspoken language of siblings that they had. And they were, but they're almost like twins, aren't they? They they describe themselves they as twins. Them, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. They thought of themselves as twins, and they did not consider themselves as separate individuals, as far as I could tell until child protection services intervened and separated all the children from their parents because the parents were being accused of providing inadequate housing to the children. It wasn't that they were abusing them. And these kids were placed in a foster care system that did give them housing, but did not give them the thing they always had at home, which was love. Two years after that, so five years after this photograph was taken, they're practically, their their bond, which was always so deep, is on the verge of being broken. And this is the scene. Dasani's in a foster home in Staten Island, a different part of New York. Forever family, writes Dasani on December 3rd, 2017, above a photograph on Facebook showing three new friends. They are throwing gang signs. Dasani, now 16, knows that her estranged sister Aviana will be rankled by this. To write forever family is Dasani's way of saying the opposite, that nothing is forever, not even family, that one's sister can be replaced as easily as one's own blood, which is not thicker than water, as their mother used to say. In the photograph, Dasani wears a red bandana in allegiance to the bloods. That's a gang. One family is poised to take the place of another. Dasani has not seen Aviana in over a year. They last exchanged texts five months ago but Dasani knows how to break her sister's silence. Precisely two hours and 35 minutes after Dasani posts the Forever Family photo, Aviana appears on Facebook, clicking a digital hand. The hand waves at her sister. Dasani waves back. Hey, sis, writes 15-year-old Aviana. A feverish correspondence follows. They agree to meet the following weekend at a subway station in Queens. They are both nervous. So Aviana sends detailed instructions. Dasani must take the A train to Broadway Junction, then the J train to Queens, to the last stop, get off, go upstairs, and then meet me at the turnstile. Queens is not Dasani's turf. She asks for the name of the station, which worries Aviana. Nothing can be left to chance. Instead, they settle on Broadway Junction, which is impossible to miss. Got you, sis, Aviana writes. 
on the afternoon of December 10, Aviana leaves her foster home in Queens and Dasani leaves her foster home in Staten Island. They check their phones. I'm on the train, writes Aviana. Me too, writes Dasani. By 1.28 p.m., they are minutes apart. Both trains arrive and the sisters dismount. They cannot find each other. Aviana writes that she is here. Dasani writes that she is coming upstairs. Aviana writes that she is coming down. No, Dasani writes, she is coming up. Where are you at? Dasani asks. Aviana is at the turnstile. Come to the escalators, writes Dasani. The thread stops. The station stops. Two sisters are crashing into each other. They have no words. They hold each other like refugees who have crossed an unseen border. Everyone is watching. Mind your own damn business, Dasani manages to shout from her sister's impossible clutch. She cannot breathe like this. No one hugs like this. You're holding me too tight. Let me go. Let me go. No one lets go. They stand like this for minutes. They already know their next move. The A train will come, taking them to downtown Brooklyn. The train is coming, the very train that their grandmother used to clean. It pulls into the station. The doors open. Oh, I mean, it's just so lovely and so beautifully written. You know, this is the thing that it is a book where the beauty of the prose is one of the things, one of the numerous pleasures that you get from it. And and I wonder how important that was for you, because it's difficult, isn't it, that it needs to be beautifully written, but you also don't want it to be about you and you don't want it to be about the style. And so how did you think about the voice with which you would tell Dasani's story? I struggled with it for a long time. And in the early days, and I wrote this book over the course of those years, and then rewrote. I, I don't consider myself a writer. I say I'm a rewriter. <laughs> I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, rewrite until it starts to feel like it's hitting the right notes. I read my stuff aloud and I read it to Dasani and to Aviana and to others as I was going. And sometimes they would say, I don't know, maybe it's more like it was this or, and I relied very heavily on video and audio, a lot of tech, which is ironic given I'm a complete Luddite myself, but I don't rely on memory. And so a lot of it was, you know, hundred, more than a hundred hours of video recordings and dozens of hours of audio recordings to ensure that that it was accurate. But at the same time, what I wanted, and I think this is where literary pursuits and journalism come together, is I wanted people to feel transported into the story, to feel moved by it, so much so that that it, maybe it felt like fiction, but then they were con constantly reminded it was real. And so they had to care about something that was really happening in this world. But the voice is hard and I didn't want it. I didn't want it to feel showy. I wanted my favorite writers are spare and they're very economical and they get out of the way of the story. So maybe for our international audience, those who, who maybe don't know what's going on in New York City and and really this this crisis of homelessness there, maybe you could just situate the kind of social backdrop, the political backdrop a little more for us. Yes. There's a huge affordable housing crisis in the United States. Less than 3% of Americans have access to federal programs, the federal government's programs, that are things like public housing, Section 8 vouchers, the things that 
can enable you to live free of the stress of the rent burden, which is when so much of your income goes to paying the rent. And uh, evictions have been a longstanding problem, of course. So we see homelessness taking different forms across the country. You've probably seen some of the news stories about the tent encampments in cities in California, where the weather allows for that. In New York City, it's a little different because due to lawsuits over several decades, there is a right to shelter. And so people have a legal right to be sheltered and the city must provide shelter if you can prove that you're homeless. And that creates, you know, a huge shelter system, but it also is not a a welcome, a friendly system. It's a quite a punitive system. People, it's supposed to be temporary. And so in that system, of hundreds of shelters. At the time that I met Jasani, there were over 22,000 children living in those shelters. I mean, that's the kind of crowd that would fill a football stadium, just to give you a, a visual. It's a huge population and it's a very insecure life. It's a life of constant displacement, of being uprooted and put in another. One of the greatest descriptions I ever came across, it's actually in the book, was by an academic named Mindy Fullilove, who describes serial displacement as root shock, is what happens mm-hmm. to a plant when you take it out of its root, with, oh, pull it away from its roots and put it in new soil repeatedly. It experiences something called root shock. And I think that this is the kind of tragedy that we see unfolding with the homeless children in this country is everyone knows how stressful it is to move. So imagine just constantly having to move, constantly having to adjust to new sounds, smells, a a, a different train station, a a different classroom. It's really hard to thrive in that environment. Is there a, a, a sort of economic basis for this? I mean, uh, it feels like this is something that is more serious now than it was. Is, is, is that because of house prices? Is it? But what is causing it to be so acute at this point in time? I think it's been building for decades. You know, so the book walks through some of this history. I don't think it's a, a new problem. It is just. In fact, when I began looking for a child to write about, I wasn't looking for a homeless kid. I was looking for a poor kid because I was stunned by the statistic that one in five children were growing up poor in America, which is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nation in the world is the superpower. One of the, you know, place that prides itself on, you know, on uh, all the things that the American so-called dream is supposed to be about. Yet we have one-fifth of our future workforce growing up at such a disadvantage that they are way more likely to wind up incarcerated, uh, pregnant as teens, dropping out of school, all of the markers that lead to really costly problems down the line. And so I was shocked by that and I wanted to find a kid and I started poking around and I saw that there was this huge, it was like a buried news story that there were these 22,000 kids. It wasn't front and center. It wasn't and to me, that was just also shocking. Like, wh- why isn't this on the front page all the time? I mean, it's stunning. So I think it's the problem that's in plain sight that we all get used to. And and it, it, in, in terms of economics, I mean, I think it is about the incredibly costly reality of housing and how hard it is for people to become home, homeowners when they don't have great wages or benefits in a country that, you know, where the livable, there isn't a livable wage for many working class folks. And so, so much goes to just staying housed 
And that's a really tenuous situation. So talk to me about when you found Dasani, when you decided it would be her story. And then this was first a series of of newspaper articles that then expanded to become this incredible book. So I started following Dasani and her family's life, uh, which was a hard sell because it always is to immerse, to say, let me just be around you for, I don't know how long, maybe a few months. (laughs) I want to do a deep portrait of what it is to be struggling with these problems. Can you let me inside? Most sane people, and they were among them, would say, no, why would I allow my privacy to be invaded? But they read my work and I'd been doing this for a long time and in a community that they cared a lot about, which was the Muslim immigrant community in the United States. I had embedded in a mosque for six months. I had done a number of deep dives, as we call them. And I think they saw that I was serious and that it wasn't going to be a superficial treatment of their story. And they believed in the power and the importance of their story. And I think that that is that does tend to be what convinces people a lot of the time to let you in, that they have something that's very, very valuable to society, that if they were to allow that story to be told, they could see potentially affect change. This, the series ran and it did affect change. 400, more than 400 children were removed by the city from substandard shelters and those shelters were forever closed to children. So that was an immediate sign that, you know, their story had power. I, just wanted to keep following them because what was clear to me, even though this was a 30,000 word, five part series that constituted a pretty deep look by newspaper standards, to me, it was only scratching the surface that there was so much more to learn by being with them about everything, about our nation's history, about the way that systemic racism plays out on the ground about all these systems that they were interacting with and how those systems work. And also just about something that I know isn't of interest to you, Alex, because we've talked about this, but you know, how do you define what thriving is? What is mm. it, what does mm. it mean to transcend? Yes, and 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 on whose terms, which I think is is fascinating. So one of the things that that I think is really important to recognise about this book is that Dasani is this just incredibly charismatic, vibrant figure, but that it is also the story of her family and particularly, I think, the, the story of her mother, Chanel. And um, Chanel clearly warmed to you and that became something, a, a relationship that was very important to you as you told the story. I wonder if you could just tell me a, a, a little bit about how you came to to gain that trust and to forge that closeness with Dasani's mother? That was, was and remains a very important relationship to me because it was entirely about my desire as a reporter to, to illuminate her story, which didn't have a platform or an audience and deserved it. But it also became just an incredible human experience to encounter her, to know her world. She took me into her world almost in the beginning as a tour guide (laughs) and never failed to make fun of me for all of my um, mistakes. I would drop my pen or I would, she just thought I had the worst uh, 
poker face she's ever seen in, you know, in the hood <laughs> and on the street. You have to really, you know, just not show your emotions. Don't show what you're thinking. And Drea, you show it all on your face and you're ruining my street cred and you're ruin you don't even have street cred and now you're ruining mine. We had a long conversations about street cred. And then when she wanted to throw me a compliment, she would say that my street cred was back up in the hood because everyone <laughs> liked me. Man. And, but I mean, I was this imposter. I was this outsider. And I think the thing that, that created a bond from the very beginning was the fact that despite all of our differences of, you know, class background, skin color of uh, just everything about our lives was so different. We were both moms. And I think, mm. you know, she once at one point said to me, I wouldn't have let you near my children if you weren't a mother. But that is also the precisely one of the things that became so challenging for me, because of course, any human would care so much about these kids being around them. And so to then go home to my very different reality, certainly I, you know, everything should be contextualized. I, I wasn't going home to a fancy apartment with a doorman. I was a renter. I'm married to a journalist, was married at that time to a journalist. And so in our own, everyone in New York, uh, I think this even applies to the wealthy feel that they don't have enough. <laughs> it's one of those cities that never fails to make you feel like there's a better life just out of reach. Every single person. But this is a family for whom everything was out of reach. Mm. And they were living right there in front of it because the wealth had come to their part of Brooklyn. And I think that that's what makes it a kind of, a, that is actually what's new about this story. When you look at the canon of, of works that I so admire and that have given, fueled me, uh, Alex Kotlowitz says there are no children here about Chicago and the projects in the eighties, Adrian Nicola Blanc's there are, uh, random family, which is about the Bronx in the nineties. Those were siloed communities where there had not yet been this return to the city that we're now seeing, not just in the United States, but all over. And this is, of course, happened in London as well, as the uh, educated classes or upper class folks are trying to look for deals and they turn neighborhoods into something else. And the people who remain in those neighborhoods tend to be those who are there because they don't have to necessarily pay rent, so they don't get priced out. And so in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, what you see is these two massive public housing projects and in the middle of them, this shelter. And that's that was Dasani's world, but it was just blocks from these townhouses that were selling for millions yeah. and these fancy shops with boho chic clothing and the, just the two worlds just right there in the same space. So yeah. I, I, Chanel... It's was constantly curious this was a this was a conversation not a one-way street this was a dialogue where she would say something i would respond she would respond and that's how i grew to learn the deep more deeply about her and was able to render her i i hope as a very three three-dimensional person in this oh, book she's she's wonderful on the page and and you know she Yes, she has. You can see where Dasani gets that charisma and drive. And what is her her advice on how to get on in life is dress fly, do good in school, fight. Which one I of think, the three. <laughs> one of the three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I wonder if you could also just say a little bit about Supreme, who is, uh, again, I, you know, I just sort of wanted, I wanted to read a parallel story that was much more focused in on, on him because you know chanel's struggle is is extraordinary but it's some in some ways 
Supreme, who is the, the husband, is dealing with so much himself and and my heart just bled for him and, and what he had to go through. So Supreme, like Chanel and like many adults in this book, show us what it means to be adults walking around the world whom people easily disrespect because they're out of work or because they're homeless or because they struggle with addiction. When what those people who are judging them don't see is that Supreme and Chanel are former children and those childhoods matter just as much as Dasani's in forming who they are. And I think he's actually, I would say hands down, one of the most complex people, probably the most complex person I've ever had to to try to write about. Every time I thought I'd figured out Supreme, <laughs> he would surprise me. And he's just uh, such a fascinating person on so many levels. This is a guy who had been in prison early. He'd, he'd been caught up in the war on drugs and landed a big sentence when he was 17, but they thought he was 18. And then educated himself and got a, a diploma from prison, came out, tried to reform himself, found that through religion, but also found it in this culture around his religion, which was the 5%, which is an offshoot of the Nation of Islam, and was very focused on when I met him, I mean, part of the, the difficulty, of course, is so much of his ideology is to cast the white person as the devil and to its own form of just it, it's 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 he would say this and he said this to me. It is black supremacy. If you talk about white supremacy, this mm. was that black people were superior and therefore I don't anyone who's white, you can't trust. So he didn't actually speak to me, I think, for the first year, but he was a very curious and intellectually open and insatiable person. He was always reading and he started reading my stuff and it became of interest to him to engage in dialogue with me. And he then really participated deeply in this, even though he had, and, and, and what my skin color represented became a very vital part of the conversation and our histories and this nation's history and the divide. It became a really important vehicle for for giving words to his story. And he read the book. He was very pleased with how, you know, how carefully I grappled with these issues and tried to explain the different phases of his life. And at the same time, I think he's just a person who has suffered so much as a child, whose sister died in front of him and whose parents were addicted to heroin and who lost his family because of the same system and wound up very much lost and and then found a, a new life with his in his marriage to Chanel, Dasani's mother. And they mm -hmm. kind of formed this new family that they wanted to create to repair the past. And yet the structural racism, which when he started to really cooperate and help me tell his story by filing Freedom of Information Acts and getting thousands of records to detail his uh, encounter with various systems, we could actually show the kinds of ways that, that, that this plays out on the ground for someone like that, for someone like him, where even just cultural misunderstandings end up hurting him. For instance, it is a common in his culture of the 5% to say the black man is God. And he uh, would sometimes say, I am God. And 
there was an intake worker who decided that he was psychotic, that he actually believed he was God versus understanding that this was actually just, he may believe that, but not because he's psychotic. It was a part of his belief system and there's a, there's a literature behind it and he quotes it. And uh, it's uh, so I, I think there's an entire, there's a whole other book to be written about Supreme and I have encouraged him to write it. <laughs> I think he should write it. I would read it. I would love it. I would too. Yeah. So uh, you talk about sort of structural racism and, 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 and the way it impacted on this on this family. You know, clearly George Floyd happened really just as you were finishing, I guess, the, the book. One of the things that I think is really both necessary and brilliant about the book is the way that you trace Dasani's heritage and the the way that her chapter is just the latest chapter in a history of that kind of structural of of lives which are rendered difficult or impossible by the structures that are put around them what changed for you in either the writing or the the i guess the reception of the book and particularly those passages after the events of 2020 so it's so interesting that you zero in on this in this conversation. I'm very grateful for this question. From day one, Chanel and Supreme eventually, when he started to trust me and talk to me, but also Dasani and others, made it their greatest project to educate me in the what was then very much the unseen history of, of racism in this country. And of course, there's something I'd thought about and even you know, grappled with in my own reporting before, but never deeply. And it was necessary with them. It was a very, very important thing to talk about. It was like history was alive within them every moment of the day. We would pass a sign or we would look at it. We were driving once past a neighborhood that had a colonial kind of architecture, one of the houses. And I remember Chanel saying, that looks like what, what a plantation would look like. It was just a constant, constant thing in, and something that I felt was so important to them. And as a journalist, you must follow where the story leads you that I wanted to trace that history. In fact, Chanel would always talk about how she had red hair because it must have come from her enslaver. Well, who were her families and original enslavers? Who were they? And so that took me down the path of working with a genealogist. And for years, we were kind of just trying to figure out what this history was to be able to tell it because it was really important to them. And also I think to the story to, to make it relevant to their current lives in the way that they felt it was relevant. And that history took me to Dasani's great grandfather, June Sykes, who had fought in World War II. And his great, great grandfather was a man named David, who had been born enslaved. And so we did locate that we, we were able to, to be able to bring that to life and show how June got his ticket out of the Jim Crow South by going and fighting abroad, fighting the Nazis abroad, even though there was such deep segregation at home and returned home and found himself unable to benefit from the things that white veterans were benefiting from, the ability to buy a home, to, st to start a business with a loan. These avenues were closed off to black veterans 
for the most part. And he was stuck in the projects. And you can then see how this sort of foundational, the roots of Dasani's poverty in that story, because so much of white wealth in this country is built on on this intergenerational safety net that begins with the making of the middle class. And we were talking about real estate earlier, the ability for white Americans in the 40s to go to the suburbs, not be kept out by restrictive covenants to go there and buy homes with loans and create wealth that would be passed down generations to the point where today, the latest study I saw is that median wealth among white people in America is 10 times the amount that it is among black Americans. And so this was a very, very important thing. And I think for me personally, it just got me really thinking all the time about the even just the way in which my own skin color changed the outcome of certain things I was experiencing. I mean, this is, this is a very personal thing, but I think before I started truly embedding in the life of Chanel, this black mom with all of these kids who was constantly dealing with all these various systems and standing in line with her, going to the emergency room with her, I didn't see this sort of uh, unspoken privilege that I was experiencing as a mom in the emergency room with my child. My, my, one of my two kids is very accident prone and she's broken bones, skateboarding and doing other things. And her dad and I would go in the emergency room and we were like reporters, you know, like boom, 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 asking all the questions that you ask because you want your kid to be okay. And are you getting that right x-rays? And starting in 2015, Actually, 2014, I started going into emergency rooms because that was medical care for Chanel. Somebody was having an asthma attack. That's where you went. And what I saw was the added fear, the added layer of being a person of sort of suspect. That's how she felt, because for her as a black woman, she was a target. The people in those uh, emergency rooms, nurses and doctors, are mandated by law to report any suspicion of abuse or neglect. And so she had to answer all the right questions. She was the one answering questions, not asking them. And I think that 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 kind of repeated exposure to this other reality is so important. I think it's what I hope people get from reading this book is what that's like just to be in her shoes. She always says, don't judge me unless you've walked a mile in my shoes. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are two things I wanted to I wanted to pick up on from what you just said. The first is what seems to me one of the fundamental lessons that I took from the book, which was this distinction between abuse and neglect that seems to me so pernicious and so problematic and such, you know, if if I think about what I would like the world to learn from this, it is that those two things are very, very different. And yet they are elided hugely problematically by many of the agencies, uh, particularly the, the ACS, that that are tasked with looking after young people in, in America. Yes, I think America historically has responded to poverty by separating children from their parents. We've seen this through time, but in its current manifestation, what it looks like in this system, which is the child protection system, which is a federally mandated system, but that plays out on the ground at the state and city level. So agency by agency, it sort of somewhat varies, but there's basically the same experience across America, which is that you as a parent can be accused of abuse or of neglect or sometimes both. Abuse, we know what that is. That's intention to harm. Neglect is about failure. It's about failing to provide. It's failure to provide adequate shelter, adequate clothing, adequate food. Uh, it is sometimes <laughs> adequate supervision as well because you might be struggling with alcoholism or drug addiction. The vast, vast majority of families that get caught up in the system are facing neglect accusations. And we know that so often the root of these problems that lead to neglect is poverty. And so there is this growing consensus that really it's the poverty of these families that's being criminalized. And it's also just astounding because this is a system that does not provide parents with a reading of their rights, that has the unchecked power for the most part, of removing a child from a parent's home. I can't imagine a kind of greater power in any 
context than that, than to remove a child. I mean, we know what that, that kind of trauma that brings. So to, to do that without due process, without a really strong system of due process is just what's, what's happening. And it happens again and again. And the year that Dasani and her siblings were removed from the home, 93% of the kids, thousands of kids in New York City who were in that system facing those accusations were there just on neglect issues, not abuse. And yet there's this idea that in the foster care system, once they've been removed and put in foster care, it's because those kids needed to be saved because they were leaving horrible, abusive things. Not the case for most cases. So, and it's a, it's a population that is disproportionately black or brown. And so I think it's a really, really important major issue. And then just the final thing, you know, there is a, there is a narrative for this book that maybe if I were a novelist writing it, I might follow. Dasani gets accepted into the Milton Hershey School, and it's an extraordinary opportunity for her. This is this private boarding school in Pennsylvania where she will have all sorts of opportunities open up to her. Were I writing it because of the world I come from and what I conceive of as success, she would go there, she would do incredibly well, she would, you know, what go on to great riches, etc., etc. That rags to riches, you know. I listen, I'm a I'm a cliche. It's we're preconditioned to to follow those those paths. She doesn't succeed there, and I don't think it's a spoiler for us to say that it doesn't go well for her. Uh, it's one of the pivotal moments, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yet what actually the book does is to say, no, don't judge by your rules. Don't follow your own uh, your your own idea of what is best for her. L- listen to her instead. Yes. I think that if you were writing this as a novelist, I think you would have gone exactly in the direction that this went, because <laughs> it's more interesting. You, you, This was not a cliche, what you said. What you articulated, Alex, was what Dasani herself hoped for when she went mm. there. Of course, she wanted mm. something better. What she found when she was there was that she was being taught to speak differently and to behave differently in a way that made her feel like she had to choose between her culture, her family, her roots, all of which she's proud of, and this other America. And in that other America, you wind up in a different place geographically. You own a home. You have a thriving career. You maybe you get married, all the markers. Uh, you have no more than maybe three kids. It's all containable and, and sustainable. And you've arrived into the middle class and you've departed. You've left behind this other world. We love those stories because they let us off the hook on, on sort of like, it's like, ah, oh, thank God. You know, if you just work hard enough, this is the American myth. I think uh, if you work hard enough, if you are talented enough, you can transcend anything. There are cases where this happens and those stories should totally be celebrated. But we rarely ask ourselves why so many children who are just as capable and just as talented don't actually succeed in making it out. And I think that that's where this this book turns the, the sort of traditional narrative of escaping poverty to some other place on its head, because we are forced to reckon with 
how much greater the barriers are than one child's potential. And also Dasani's own notion of success, which Hershey helped her figure out, hey, I got some new skills there. I learned to be an excellent debater. I learned to feel confident in front of an audience of white people, so much so that this is not another spoiler. I can tell you she got up in a courtroom towards the end of the book and made her own case for why she should be reunited with her mother. That I don't think would have happened had she not been practicing those very skills at Hershey. The thing is that she wants it both ways and why shouldn't she have it both ways? She wants to be able to thrive, to transcend poverty, to succeed, but in her own cultural context, she doesn't wanna have to leave. She wants success to come to her part of America and she's working on it now. She's in college and I'm sure people are gonna ask more about her. So I'll I'll let the questions happen, but. Uh, Okay, Okay, lovely. Let's uh, let's go to those questions um, from the audience. And and the first one we've got is, is, is I think something you and I discussed when we first spoke, which is how, how do you tell these stories without the risk or opening yourself up perhaps to the accusation that you're exploiting them? How do you balance that very tricky moral situation? It should always be on the mind of the journalist. I think that's number one. We need to be constantly wrestling with what our work is or isn't doing. Um, And are we delving deeply enough? I think that it is about ultimately doing justice to the work, right? To the story that is before us, to grappling with it as deeply as possible, to reading as many books as you can in order, sometimes I would read a whole book just to write a paragraph (laughs) in 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 this book. And I think exploitation is a kind of cursory treatment of a subject in service of some kind of escape that then benefits the person who told the story, but leaves the other people behind. And I think I've tried, labored very hard against every single one of those things. Yeah. And And, I also, um, you know, no, I mean, I, you know, it is, it is proof in itself. I think it's one of those things that, you know, the, the book itself stands sort of testimony uh, as a, as a, as a response to any question, because it is such a deep work of, of, of being with, to use a Heideggerian term. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you reminded me because you had asked about George Floyd. The, the, the end of that story that I was telling earlier is when that happened, there were periods like years where I would say to Chanel, I think this is fascinating. I'm glad we've gotten to the bottom of the story of your ancestors. I just hope someone reads this to, oh, my God, this has suddenly become a critical issue in American public discourse. So. And then it is fair to ask, and I think you did ask me this last time we spoke, you know, the question, and maybe someone else is asking, you know, what gives you to what gives you, Andrea, the right to tell this story? And my feeling, my response to that is that I it is, I don't have the right to tell the story, that it is my duty to tell the story. It is not my right. It is my duty as a journalist, because what we're called to do as journalists is to tell the biggest stories of our day. And I think this is one of them. And yeah. everyone of every background should be on this story. Do you think gentrification is a new form of segregation or indeed an old form? So um, if you think about the origins of that word, uh, I think it, I believe it comes from a sociologist from the UK. Actually, this is in my notes. So I'll have to look this up after her name escapes me. But she coined this decades ago and the word itself comes from gentrice, which 
one read of that word is of noble descent. So it does suggest that nobility has arrived. So right there you have divisiveness, whether it's class, race, usually both. I do think it has resulted for sure in, in, in segregation. You, we see this in New York City schools. We see this in housing. We see all, for, all kinds of division in American life along the lines of class and race. Did you know at the start how long you were going to be with Dasani for? And, and I think this is a really good question. How did you know when it was time to write the book? That's a great question. It's funny, I sort of wish I could have jumped into the future and been listening to this podcast in my <laughs> former self a year or two in after the series had run. I had great moments of panic of just feeling that this book is about everything. It felt like it was about so many things. It is about so many things. I think that looking back on those moments, that that was the right thing to feel. And I think if we're not very nervous about complicated subjects that we are tasked or have decided sh to show up for and write about, then something's wrong. So I didn't feel ready to write for a few years because so many things just kept happening. And one thing I'll tell you is I did write the ending of this book on three different occasions and all three endings are in the book. They're just chapter endings. <laughs> the one I read at the beginning of this uh, conversation was, I thought, the end in 2017. But then more kept happening and it, it, it created, you know, deeper sort of new levels of understanding or uh, it beckoned me into new um, threads of history or policy. And I just felt that I had to keep going. And I did, at, it's not so much when did you know it was time to start writing so much as when did you know it was time to stop? And I think at a certain point, it just felt like if I didn't stop, the story wouldn't see the light of, of other readers of day, right? And so it needed to end. But I think you learn so much in the writing process. You learn what you don't know. So it's important to not wait too long because as you write, you see the holes and you have to go back and 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 try your best to film fill them and the the obvious one that that follows on from that which somebody has asked but also you know i always want to ask is is how is dasani doing now dasani is on an upswing this is what she says of herself and uh she uh finally agreed to speak with a um, for the BBC, which will be airing, I don't know when, but she has stayed very quiet because she's felt that she wasn't ready to speak. And, and so she's kind of been enjoying watching all of these events and she'll probably watch this one. But her words to that person and also just in general are, you know, I'm doing the best I can and there's ups and downs. My life has been a roller coaster all along, but it's a little less of a roller coaster now. She's the first person in her family to graduate from high school, the first to enroll in college. She's She wants to go into real estate. This is the latest interesting development. I find her fascinating. I will always find her fascinating. A homeless kid whose entire existence was defined by her lack of a home in the very beginning when I met her is now hell-bent on becoming an excellent realtor. And the way she put it was, I love looking at homes. I love seeing them empty and then seeing them filled. The floors, the sinks, the... And she's always been interested. And that this was part of the reason she loved the show Criminal Minds was the crime scenes would show you these homes and these giant walk-in closets. And she would watch this, this show from her crammed room in the shelter, but she found it fascinating how other people lived. 
So wouldn't that be amazing if she actually brought that to fruition? And I believe she'll do whatever she she sets her heart on. Yeah, I mean, she's such a force. It's it's amazing. This is an interesting question. So is there something specific about New York to this story of child homelessness, or is it a universal story? And, and just to sort of follow up on that, I was describing the book to somebody, and I know, and I realized that the the books that I reached for that it reminded me of were from very different places. So Stuart, A Life Backwards by Alexander Masters, which is wonderful. And then Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers, um, set in, in Mumbai. And so to me, that would suggest that this is a, a, a really universal theme that you're writing about. But obviously, there are things that are very specific to, to New York. So what's specific to New York Aside from it being a city that everyone has, no matter where you are in the world, some sense of, it might have been a flicker of something from a movie, or it could have been one of the best trips or the worst trips of your life. <laughs> it's a city that is, I think, emblematic in so many ways of of different aspects of of culture and experience and nationalities across the world. And in fact, everyone can be found to be living in New York. It's a global city. What's Unique to it is the fact that there is this legal right to shelter. And so I think it allows us to see in a more concentrated way the experience of what it is for these homeless families to be living in this way versus in places where they don't have that uh, that that benefit and therefore are more often doubled up. It's, a, it's slightly less sort of uh, in people's vision. It's it's yeah, unseen. Yeah. But yeah. but I do think and I love those books you mentioned. And I do think that what we're talking about when we're talking about housing insecurity, food insecurity, homelessness is we're in a very general sense. We're talking about this, the idea of belonging. I think that's what this book is about. At the end of the day, if you had to ask me how all of these themes interconnect, it's about who gets to belong to a place and who doesn't. And that place is a physical place. It's New York City, but it's also a metaphorical place that could be understood through politics, through economics, through social structures. It's a place in America that still feels different for people of color more than 50 years after uh, the civil rights movement, more than 50 years after President LBJ declared a war on poverty that still is a place of disadvantage. And yeah. so I think what Dasani wants is to feel that she belongs and that she's entitled to the same American dream that uh, a lot of people take for granted. This is a, a, a an interestingly British question from James in Brighton. Is class taken seriously as an issue in American politics? Why is so much of the political conversation around cultural issues and not poverty? So, wow, that is a great question. And I lived in the UK for a short time as a child, and I was struck by the clarity of the kind of class, lines of class, right? That there was a lot of discussion around class. And my mother's from Chile, same thing. So class focused. And I remember just years, many years ago, this was when I was a teen, believing that America was uh, somewhat free of that, that this was a place that was it was harder to define you know specific classes that 
the, the, the mythology that you hear about America that is, you know, ultimately a place of, of inherent meritocracy. What I think is clear is that it's a very polarized nation and that a lot of the debates are driven by class divides, even if that's not at the forefront of the conversation. And it's interesting because when I set out to write this story, I felt a little bit nervous about the political conversation that does happen around poverty because it is so centered on the adults. And it's always about either you're in the camp of it's their fault, they're lazy, whatever, let's blame them. Or you're in the camp of it's not their fault. It's this is very reductionist, but you know, it's structural racism and structural pro issues that lead to their problems. And, and, and so much of this is about assigning blame or relieving blame from these adults when in the shadows of that conversation is this non-voting population. It's outside of politics of children that at the time it was 16 million children growing up poor in America, that I don't care where you land on the political spectrum, you have to face the fact that they exist and they aren't there because of a choice they made or they just were there, there because that, that was what, that was the lot that they got dealt. And so, my initial purpose was to focus on the children and, and write about a child for that very reason, to say, let's just look at what it is to be poor as a child and what you're up against. But the more I sort of dove into her, after the series, dove into her story to write a book, the more I saw that, that the adults in her family are also former children and that those childhoods need to be understood, that this, this is a sequence of childhood experiences that are really, really important to grapple with when you're thinking about what's happened in America. Uh, and then just finally, and, and, and relatively swiftly, how did the pandemic impact the inequalities you write about in the book? Will the pandemic leave a, a lasting legacy on these people? So a couple of interesting things to say about the pandemic is that it created relief programs that we have seen in studies that have come out have actually been very beneficial to children like Dasani. So one is this child tax credit that is just a basic income that has lifted on average about three and a half million children out of poverty every month since in the last under a year since it began, which tells you a lot because studies of those families that are receiving that cash show that they're spending it on the right things. They're spending it on things like clothing and food and paying bills and not on uh, uh, things like beer. <laughs> so that's, I think, a very striking piece. Another thing that we saw happen was the eviction moratorium. That paused evictions and brought the homeless numbers down in New York so that we were around 15,000 kids in the fall. I think it's still hovering around there versus 22,000 when Dasani was homeless. That moratorium in New York State has been lifted just now, uh, a week ago. And I think we're going to see a return to a spike in numbers. And so I think that you see right there a lot. You learn a lot by looking at, at the impact of those two governmental in interventions and how they have changed the lives in the interim of poor children. Wonderful. Andrea, it's such a pleasure. Um, the book is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope. And, and you know, I'd like to leave the audience with something that, that I feel really strongly and, and really wanted to convey when I was writing about the book, which is that uh, this could be a depressing story. It could be, there are parts of it that are distressing and upsetting, 
But it's also a very funny story. It's a very hopeful story. And you leave it full of hope for Dasani and for others alongside her and for, you know, humanity, that it is a book that I think left me feeling really good about the world, even though it's dealing with with a really difficult set of circumstances. So I just, I urge people to buy it and read it. It is one of the great books. And, and, and if you don't trust me, then trust Barack Obama, who I was delighted to see chose it as one of his books of the year. Andre Elliott, thank you so, so much for your time and, uh, and for writing such a wonderful book. Thank you, Alex. It's been great. <laughs>